Welcome to Pomegranate Health, a podcast about the culture of medicine. I'm Mick Cavazzini for the Royal Australasian College of Physicians. Before I start today's show, I want to thank all reviewers who've guided me over the past year on the podcast editorial group. They are Adrian Torta, Atif Slim, Duncan Austin, Ellen Taylor, Ilana Ginges, Joseph Lee, Keith Uy, Lexi Freudenberg, Lisa Mounty, Lisa Tan, Lauren Einstein, Lucy Hegstrom, Marion Layton, Michael Hurd, Nele Legge, Oliver Dillon, Paul Cooper, Philippa Vormald, Priya Garg, Rhiannon Mello, Rosalind Pizzola, Sion Chatterjee, Sima Radhakrishnan, Sernway Yeo, Stella Sarlos, Victoria Langton, and Vika Pudyal. It's an honour to be supported by such a talented cast. And now for today's show. I've shared with you before the podcast Essential Ethics from the Royal Children's Hospital in Melbourne, which explored some challenging paediatric case studies. In a new series titled Deciding with Children, the presenters return to one of the perennial questions in this space. When can a child be considered to have autonomy to make healthcare decisions for themselves? The term Gillick competence is often used to describe this transition point, in recognition of a case that went before the British courts in 1985. Victoria Gillick was a conservative Catholic woman who sued the Department of Health for advising doctors that they might, on occasion, prescribe contraceptives to girls without the permission of their parents. Crucially, 16 is considered the age of consent when it comes to sexual activity. But does that mean a child below that age should not be able to make decisions about their own health? The case made it all the way up to the House of Lords, but ultimately went against the plaintiff. A majority of lords held that minors could, in principle, consent to treatment, and that parents or guardians had no power of veto over this. They added, however, that doctors would need to establish, on a case-by-case basis, the young person's capacity to understand the procedure to a sufficient degree that informed consent could be given. Many questions remain, though, such as what intrinsic rights a young patient has up to the age of so-called Gillick competence. How should responsibility be shared between the patients, parents and clinicians? And is it possible to minimise the moral injury when the wishes of the patient need to be overruled? To tackle these questions and introduce the speakers, I'll hand you over to Professor John Massey, a respiratory paediatrician at RCH, an academic through University of Melbourne. I'm your host, John Massey, Clinical Director of the Royal Children's Hospital Children's Bioethics Centre. I'm joined today by our senior clinical ethicist, Professor Lynn Gillam. Welcome, Lynn. Thank you, John. Lynn is the academic director of the Children's Bioethics Centre and professor at the University of Melbourne, Department of Global and Population Health. I'm also joined by Professor Claire Delaney. Welcome, Claire. Hello, John. Claire is a clinical ethicist uh, here at the Children's Bioethics Centre, also at the Peter McCallum Comprehensive Cancer Centre, and also at the University of Melbourne. Keeping you busy, Claire. Indeed. <laughs> Lynn, I might start with you. Sure. And just to get a historical background about decision-making for children in paediatric healthcare. Yeah, sure. Actually, John, I think it's probably helpful to get a sense of decision-making in healthcare yep. more generally. If we look back far enough, the person who made decisions about medical treatment was the doctor, and that was the case even for adults. And what we've seen happen over time is an increasing uh, shift towards emphasis on individual autonomy and the adult patient making their own decisions for themselves. And I think that goes along with a recognition that um, in terms of what's in somebody's best interests, that's a partly subjective idea. So it depends on what that person themselves values and what their preferences 
are. So that's for adults. Um, then in relation to children, again, we've increasingly seen the idea that um, parents have a role in decision-making for their children to uh, where we've got to now, you're suggesting as the almost default position, parents and doctors share the decision-making about the child. Our question is, where does the child fit into that? Since the uh, the mid-80s, based on a, a UK court case, we've at least had the idea of the mature minor that it, at some level of development, an adolescent is essentially able to function as an adult, and that's the point at which they should be able to make the decisions for themselves in the way that an adult would. Um, but that big space before that of um, to what extent the child should be involved, to what extent the children's wishes should be uh, sought or acted on in any way, that's the kind of grey area I think that we want to unpack. And I think it's very interesting, Lynn, because you know, in, in clinical practice I see that patients will come as a baby and physicians will, will develop a relationship and, and, of course, the speaking is done by the parents or... Or, or parents will come a little bit later, but, uh, you know, they're making the appointment, they might be paying the bill, and so there's important to be discussing things with the parent. And it's, I think, just too easy to lose sight of where the child might be and understand where the child is, even amongst people here practising at you know, Royal Children's Hospital, paediatricians elsewhere. So, Claire... Could I ask you, you know, what do you see as the ethical principles that underpin deciding with children? Well, John, I think the ethical principles, the words are the same as what you would use for adults um, when thinking about respecting a child or including a child's voice into their healthcare decisions. So if you include the child's voice and preferences and ensure that they're um, understanding what's happening to them, they're likely to be more cooperative. So the, the treatment will go better. They will keep coming in. They won't be so anxious about coming in because they have some understanding. So um, you can look at that as an instrumental outcome. And you can also take it out of that fine-grained, well, there's use in doing this because the child will cooperate more, to intrinsic respect for a child as a person, which is the same as you would respect an adult as a person. And that means their wishes and thoughts and beliefs deserve respect or acknowledgement. And we'll talk a bit more about how you figure that out and what it looks like. So I wanted to move to Lynn. Uh, how do you think about the moral status mm. of children? One way of thinking about what value to accord to children is to think of them in terms of how like an adult are they? Uh, and then you get this account of increasingly like an adult over time. Why do we attach value to adults? Um, for some philosophers, we attach value to adults because of their capacity for autonomy in a really, I guess, um, high-level sense of reflection, judgment, being able to think through to make a decision that takes into account whatever moral aspects need to be taken into account. So for some philosophers, that's a reason for placing value on people. One of the problems with that view is that it doesn't seem to give us a good reason for placing value on an infant or a young child or an adult with an intellectual um, disability who doesn't have the capacity to do those things. And yet it doesn't seem right to say, oh, well, since they can't, they're not autonomous in that really strict sense, then they have no value. 
the child now is a person. A person's value because they're because they're a person, not just because they have this um, complicated intellectual capacity to be autonomous. Claire, what about rights? Though? So, United Nations Convention on the Rights of the Child says that we should consider the child in matters that affect their life. So, do you think that obliges us more strongly, or we're already obliged? I think that rights language helps to articulate what is important for a class of people or, or, or for a person and that it cements it into uh, something that people have to take notice of. But I think in this case the rights language doesn't necessarily help the clinician looking after a child to know how to do it. <laughs> a child can have a right to something but someone's got to give effect to that right. And I think that's where the complexity lies. Yeah, it makes us think more about this thing as being important if we call it a right. So if we say a child has a right to a voice, that means the child has an intrinsic claim to being noticed for themselves as their own person. And as Claire said, someone has to give effect to a child's rights. It's really hard for a child to to stand up and claim their right to have a voice. Um, so the, the right then puts responsibilities or obligations on others. And I think that responsibility or obligation has to play out in terms of directly engaging with the child, not just imagine what they might say or think that we know what they might say. As we've heard, it's important to try and glean a child's wishes on top of their health interests, even before they become autonomous. But what do we actually mean by the term autonomy, and how can you tell once it has emerged? It's a question that comes up many times in this series of podcasts for essential ethics. For simplicity, I've pasted in a good definition provided by Professor Lynn Gillam in episode two, before we go back to the conversation we were hearing earlier. Um, so it is helpful to think about what we mean by the, the term autonomy. So strictly speaking, autonomy is not just the ability to express a preference or to have an idea. Autonomy means having the cognitive capacity to think things through and having a formulated view of yourself and the world and what matters to you so you can take in information relate it to your views and values uh, and make a decision that will promote your life going the way that you want it to. Now, when you describe autonomy like that, it's really clear, I think, that young children can't I mean, that sounds like that. can't to me. Yes, it is. And so when we respect an adult's autonomy, that's the kind of autonomy that we're talking about. And in that space where a child might be a mature minor, an, adoles an older adolescence, that's the sort of capacities we might be ascribing to that 16 or 17-year-old. For younger children, when we talk about their autonomy, I'm wanting to put it a little bit in inverted commas or at least to to change the framing of it, where, where it means something more like agency, capacity to, to be involved in discussions, to understand what's going on. It's not necessarily the capacity to make a decision which accords with their deeply held values. So it's not autonomy in that sense. But there's still lots of ways in which a child has the capacity to engage in the world and their life goes better if they engage with what's going on around them and their position and views are taken seriously by others. 
And so, it, to me, that's the bit that we're talking about in particular is really recognising that there's not a sharp divide between adults and maybe Gillick competence, adolescents whose views should be totally respected and acted on, and then below that, children's views don't matter at all. We're trying to open up this space for children's views and preferences. Yeah, I mean, I think that's why we're here having the discussion. But I, I think what I really also take from that too, Lynn, is is that we're not talking about ceding decisional authority to the child. And I think that's an easy misconception and may be easily picked up by, you know, perhaps an older generation who's used to children just doing what they're told. So we want to consider them, involve them, but uh, we're not saying you get to choose. Yeah. And what the thing that Claire was talking about before uh, as well about the nature of the decision, that's also important to take into account. So there are some choices that, it would be perfectly reasonable to offer to young children about which arm to have an injection in or whether to sit on the chair or sit on mum's lap or whatever it is, which might seem really small to us and we don't even necessarily think of them as a decision, but they're important in the child's agency and interaction with the world. And it it's in within the scope of the child's, I guess, capacity to make a decision for themselves that they can decide which arm, and it doesn't matter medically speaking, it doesn't matter in terms of the procedure. So if we can give them that choice, respecting the child's right to a voice, says if we can, we should, because that's a uh, you know an instrumentally but also an intrinsically valuable thing to do, worthwhile thing to do to to bring that child more actively into what's happening. I just wanted to pick up on Lynn's characterisation of uh, autonomy being to do with um, a decision which is which accords with your life values and is perhaps consistent um, and represents you. And I would think that a three-year-old who persistently and consistently um, asks for a particular thing, um, you know, the, their purview is that's their life world and they are consistent about this desire for the moment. Mm, mm. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so that's a really good point, Claire, and I think what it shows is that c- having consistent values is not enough to no. give you capacity for autonomy in the Kantian full-blown sense because a child might persistently want, as we sometimes see in Main Street here, an ice cream every time they come in, uh, and that doesn't that doesn't Suggest. change. That's always yeah. the case. doesn't mean we should give them the ice cream. doesn't mean we should give them the ice cream instead of yes. whatever treatment they've come in for. So I think it shows that just having stable values is not enough. We want, for that bigger, really full-blown idea of autonomy, we want some sense of, uh, I guess, context and long-term and understanding competing considerations and so on, which is the bit that the three-year-old doesn't have. And I think the value, though, in acknowledging the uh, three-year-old's consistent preference, but not perhaps sophisticated understanding of the meaning of their preference or the long-term effect, uh, is that it also promotes in a child a capacity to or, or a motivation to think for themselves. We, we promote a child's well-being by getting them to exercise or, or eating as well as they can because we know ultimately in the future that's going to benefit them. And similarly, if we can start promoting their capacity to be involved in their own health decisions. Is that the doctor's job, Claire? Is that the parent's job? 
Uh, good question. <laughs> I think it's. I think it is the doctor's job. I think it is a, a health practitioner's job. You can't just only focus on clinically what you're doing and ignore the child as a whole. It's a sort of. I mean, I don't think that will come out. That comes out yeah. in chronic disease, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, there's uh, where where we're looking to have a young person who then becomes a young adult who is knows about their disease, knows what goes well for them, knows how to make decisions and actually knows how to work the system, which is you know, sort of related uh, to this. There's one question I wanted to pick up on when you asked whose responsibility is it? Is it the doctor's responsibility to ensure that the child's voice is heard or or is it the parent's responsibility? Do we leave it to the parents or or do you take over at some point? And I think that's a really interesting question because – you know, we acknowledge that parents are the experts around their child and, you know, they've um, they've brought the child up in the way that um, is best for their family and, and as best they can. When the child comes into hospital, um, what happens to parental authority? Because the decision is now about health and illness and procedures. Parents aren't experts about that. So what is the extent of the clinician's responsibility to take over from parents? Yeah, I think that's a really challenging question, Claire, because as you say, when it's about the decision about which medical treatment or form of, of healthcare management to have, yeah. it's easy to see that clinicians have have expertise about that. When it's a question of to what extent the child gets to be involved in the conversation or express their views, that's not a matter of medical expertise and and I guess different parents uh, in different families have different views about that and bring their children up to be more or less active in, in engaged uh, and involved in family decision making or else to be uh, essentially to follow the parents lead and the job of children is to um, do what the parents want them to do. There are just different views about that. So it is challenging to think about um, I guess clinicians stepping into that parent-child yeah. relationship. But I mean, I think as a paediatrician, we're thinking broadly about a child's life going well, and we know that regardless of the parent's view about them, the child's going to turn 18, and there may be cultural elements that they still make decisions as a group or a family in that, but however, still going to be expected to m make some decisions. Uh, and I don't think it's necessarily all or one or both. I mean, I think there's an element of the doctor coaching the parent to ah. coach the child in the medical setting and become uh, a, a decision maker. Is there a sense of timing though, Claire, where you think that the obligation to start including a, the child with their ideas uh, starts? Well, I guess it doesn't seem hugely important when they're a newborn um, to to take some time to look at their experience, although I, I would argue it, it is valuable, but it might not be as obvious to some people. This is the new grandmother speaking. <laughs> oh, no, no. Well, well, it's also the um, PhD supervisor whose who's student is um, looking at the experience of a child in NICU, of a, of a baby. So I do think there's a, there's a, sh a shift even to recognising the the value of learning from a child's expressions. Um, but it also depends on the nature of the decision, which if it's a really simple decision, then y you can bring the voice of the child in much earlier and for good reasons. If it has um, sort of 
serious consequences, then you might want to evaluate, does this child have the capacity to understand this such that they can contribute? Some accounts of this uh, might consider that once a child is able to express a preference, then their moral status increases in this space from simply being alive in a person to now they can express some preferences and therefore we need Mm. to take that into account. Mm. So I was thinking when you ask Claire about when does this start, um, it's tempting to say something like, well, it starts when a child is is able to talk and then they can tell us something about what they think and a two or three-year-old can easily express in words that they are frightened of this or they don't want to do that. But actually, if you think back even earlier, even children who are not able to talk can quite clearly communicate um, their feelings. So if we're thinking about the voice of the child, I think we need to take it not too literally. It's not just what they're able to say. It's what they're able to communicate with us. But of course, that doesn't mean that we should make our decisions just based on the child's aversion for example. So if a baby doesn't want to be vaccinated or scared of a needle coming near them, that's not a reason not to vaccinate them. But it is a reason to take account of that and say, we don't want this baby to be frightened. Uh, We don't want the three-year-old to have to have a procedure being forcibly held down. So their view about the situation matters and should be taken into account, even if it's not going to ultimately determine whether the procedure happens or not, it might have an influence on decisions about how to do the procedure or when to do the procedure or where the procedure is, is done. So it's, it's, I think it's helpful if we think not just about the medical treatment decision but all of the decisions around it. So autonomy is the ability to make considered decisions for oneself informed by an understanding of the immediate and long-term consequences of the action. But at what point during development might that actually emerge? In the second episode of this series, John Massey and Lynn Gillam spoke with developmental paediatrician Daryl Efron. He's an associate professor at the University of Melbourne, a chief investigator at the Murdoch Children's Research Institute, and has practised at Royal Children's Hospital for over 30 years. He started with a potted timeline of brain development and the associated cognitive skills. So firstly, brains are built from the bottom up, from the brainstem up to the cortex, from the simple to the complex. This is a programmed uh, sequence of events that begins in fetal life, continues very rapidly through the early years, but actually continues through childhood and adolescence, and now we know even into adult life. Infancy is all about um, secure attachment, really. That's the key developmental task of, of, of infancy. But in toddlerhood, it's kind of the opposite, and that starts to get into our territory for today, is autonomy and separation from parents beginning, you know, sort of in the second year of life. Then there's the preschool period, which is, you know, magical thinking, fantasy play, and increasingly social development uh, in relation to other peers and other individuals. And then the primary school years, uh, which is where the, the cognitions become really quite complex. There's a lot of problem solving, a lot of uh, logical reasoning, relatively concrete thinking, but increasingly abstract through those years as well. Um, and identity formation, who am I, what are my preferences, what are my values, starts to happen through those primary school years and a self-concept and, and in fact, moral development. Um, so I think 
when those things are all happening in that healthy sequence, um, then which will inform what we're going to talk about, about involving children in decisions. John, can I ask Daryl a question at this point? Oh, I've, got I've got so many so too. No, no, get in there, Lynn. First, please. So, Daryl, you're saying this process continues into early adulthood. So what's the last bit that happens? Well, if I, um, the skills and capacities that human beings have acquired ontologically uh, most recently are acquired the latest and are also most vulnerable to injuries from uh, any, any insult uh, to loss. So that's really those um, prefrontal cortex uh, and what's called the uh, frontostriatocerebellar circuits. Not by me. Not by you. So we're talking about things that you do know all about, Lynn, which is about judgment, about the capacity to self-regulate, the capacity to reflect and to think about um, your own behaviour in relation to other people and consequences and more distant goals as opposed to immediate rewards. Mm. All of those qualities that the psychologists tell us are critical for success. Not, I want that now, but I'll do my homework first and then maybe I'll get yeah. that. So I think you're seeing um, some of those skills developing from school entry, okay? That's why we say kids can sit down and attend to tasks and withhold immediate needs for increasing periods of time, 10, 15 minutes to work on something that's dull and boring, mm. a spelling sheet or something in the classroom, right. uh, even though they'd rather run around in the playground um, from, yeah, about school entry. That's why we put kids in those sorts of groups, but it continues to evolve right through to adult life. And um, the other thing is the white matter, the connectivity between different brain regions continues to evolve well into the um, third decade of life. Wow. I mean, there are many amazing things in that. And what I liked, Daryl, was that that supports our concept of deciding with, with children is that you've described some of those steps at a much younger age than I might have thought and, and, and where the judgment is starting to come in and, and even who am I and, and, and my values in, in, in sort of primary school, not just in you know, what Absolutely. we might call adolescence, which mm. is really important to what, to what we want to say. And then just towards the end, then you mentioned that difference between immediate goals and capacity to appreciate more distant events. And I think that is something that in ethics we're often up against the adult's ability to think long-term and think of best interests for what they think is the child's life project and the child's more immediate wishes. And what about, though, you know, starting to provide medical information to kids, which, you know, I guess might be part of that journey of, of, of decision-making? When, when do you start talking about that with kids? Well, I think we're always making some sort of informal assessments of the kids' understanding of what's going on in the consulting room or, or on the ward, you know, and that's based on what we know about their developmental status, you know, their age and their cognitions and so on and how they communicate with us. So um, I'm not sure there's an answer to when do you do that. I think a general principle should be that as a default, we should always at least ask permission if we're going to be doing anything with a child. Um, and in terms of um, some medical um, activity, some procedure, for example, or some treatment, some medication that needs to happen to the child, I think from a younger age than many people might assume, we should be involving children at least in terms of explaining what we're doing and why we're doing it. And it also suggests, though, that the environment that us as healthcare workers are providing, contributing perhaps to that moral development. So when you say you're talking to the infant, you're explaining, you're undressing them, or you're talking to an older kid and explaining what might happen to them uh, for their immunisation, that potentially, they might be short interactions, but you perhaps are contributing to that development. 
This is an interesting idea, that healthcare is not just a place where a child observes and sometimes participates in decisions about their well-being. The experience itself can be a formative one for the child's moral compass and their attitudes towards authority or civic institutions. Let's imagine a kid who's not too keen on needles and protests loudly at being given the COVID-19 vaccine that's now been approved for children over five. Few parents and even fewer physicians would take the child's resistance as a reason not to give this protective intervention. Best interests over the long term are deemed too important, and it can be assumed the child isn't able to weigh these up over the short-term discomfort or side effects. Is it then disingenuous to ask the patient's preferences if there's a good chance they'll be ignored or overruled? We'll hear first from Lynn Gillam and John Massey talking with Claire Delaney. A potential danger is we engage directly with the child, we're interested in what they've got to say, we hear about their concerns, we elicit their preferences. Um, We've met our ethical obligations and then we just do the opposite of what they said. Is that just really disrespectful to the child or really deceptive to to pretend to care about what they say and then say, oh, well, actually, it doesn't matter what you say, we're doing this. So does that mean we shouldn't have engaged them in the first place? I mean, I think kids have a great sense of natural justice and I think we have the risk of creating moral injury. We need to think up ahead about minimising that, but accepting, Lynn, as you've said, that perhaps in their best interests they're going to have to proceed with something that uh, is an element of, of noxiousness. You know, the American Academy of of Paediatrics in their 1995 document about assent and consent and and dissent basically said, well, if you're not going to agree with what the child does, don't ask them. And, uh, you know, that that at first look is pretty pragmatic. Medical decisions uh, are often made very quickly. So, of course, if you're going to go to theatre to do an operation and there's no choice about it, then we're not going to be presenting either the parents or the child with a choice or with a right of veto. However, that's not to say you shouldn't include them in discussion about what needs to happen and frame that in a way that can include them and in an instrumental sense try and get some locus of control for the child. Uh, But I think there are practical things that one can do even when you know the child won't want it. But having recognised that we've done something that they really were unwilling to have done, perhaps then we need to circle back Ah. afterwards and think, well, then is there something we can do afterwards that might also address the harms harms that we've created? Mm. And obviously a lot of it's done in an instrumental way, but I think the audience now will be thinking of an intrinsic, respectful, I don't know if you call it an apology, I've had some uh, disagreements with practitioners about, you know, apologising uh, to children, and I'm not sure that it, that that has to be around the word apologising, but it, it's acknowledging that there's hurt. So that is an idea in the literature, isn't it? It's been suggested that uh, the appropriate, the ethically appropriate thing to do is apologise to the child afterwards if you had to do something, if decision needed to be made to go against what the child wanted, you should go back and apologise afterwards. It sounds though, it could, I think if, uh, that's why I don't necessarily like the word apologise, it sounds very much like a footballer's apology. If what I just did to you was hurtful to you, then I'm, I'm sorry you got hurt. You know, well, what's that about? That's not, I think, what we mean. I think it's acknowledging that something had to be done, that there's a greater purpose and that uh, exploring what's left over. Uh, yeah, maybe it's not one person, maybe it's not apologising, but rather, 
giving the child a chance to debrief or <laughs> tell you about what that meant to them, which is ah. different to an apology. So that's really interesting because the apology, I was about to say I quite like the idea of apologies, but the apology comes from the clinician, so it's the yeah. clinician's voice. Yeah. Whereas what you're suggesting is giving the child a chance to tell you how they felt about that, yeah. which is the child's voice, isn't it? Yeah. Which is what you were trying to do in the first place. That's right. So I really like which that. Which is not yeah. the physician trying to make themselves feel better yeah. Yeah. That's about, right. Uh, that's right. about what's just happened. I think what we're talking about is by respecting the person, we're trying to minimise that moral injury. Actually, going back to what we've started with, respecting the child and their views about what's happened. Let's go back to the conversation with Daryl Efron and some of his suggestions about how to give paediatric patients a sense of agency, even if only with some of the smaller decisions about their care. And there's also the idea that you're responsible not just to the child in front of you, but to the person they will grow into, who may be more sympathetic to the best interests you have in mind for them. Uh, I think this question of respect for the child um, it, it's all about how far do you take it, I suppose. So a common scenario is the child doesn't want to do what we think is best for them. The example of having a plaster on a broken arm or, or take a medication or something like that. What do you do in that situation? Is it respectful for the child there and then, this is an amateur ethicist talking here, to say, oh, you don't want to do it, okay, I won't mm. do it. Mm. Or I really respect you, I know this is going to be good for you, but you won't be able to see that now. But down the track, if I talk to you as a 14-year-old, you'll mm. understand why I've done that. Mm. Um, so because I respect you, mm. I'm going to override your, uh, your wish not to do this. In my mind, I first of all try to be as clear as I can how important this thing is, this, this healthcare intervention. How important is it really, you know? And in my practice, prescribing psychotropic medications is a, a common example. You know, it's not life and death but I think it's, it might be good for the child. Um, and I guess the stronger I feel about it, the more I'll try and bring the child around, working with the child, um, enlisting the parent as an ally. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and that doesn't always work, but <laughs> where that's possible. But then that's a bit, little bit dangerous morally, I suspect, because you can be seen to have the, the big people ganging up on the little powerless yeah. person. Yeah. So none of this is straightforward. Yeah. So, Daryl, can I ask you to comment on that question of, offering the child a choice because not there is in the end they won't have a choice yeah i don't think i don't think that's the right way to frame it for most i mean there might be some situations no choice and i've heard you talk about the, again this plaster one that you spoke about recently a blue plaster or red plaster those sorts of choices where available are good you know it gives the child a sense of control but i think there are many medical decisions where it's not really a choice it's about how you try and bring the child around to see the value in the intervention Okay. which is not straightforward. But I think it starts with something you've touched on, John, which is sharing information. And I think you'd be familiar with this. We sometimes need to have the same conversation, you know, next month or or next week so that the, the child and the family can consider what we're proposing. Um, it's a good strategy, actually, and I, I often do that in difficult situations. Well, this is what I suggest. I can see, you know, you're not sold on the idea at the moment, but there's, this is what I'm suggesting. This is the reasons why. Why don't we talk about it again in two weeks? And I think there's things that don't always happen that we don't always do that can, you know, very simple things that can make quite a difference. Just explaining what you're going to do and reason why you're going to do that. Um, uh, and we probably rush it sometimes and we probably don't listen to the child's response and sometimes mm. just reassuring the child. They might have two, two questions. 
and they might be things that we hadn't thought we hadn't realized they were concerned about or worried about or misunderstood if you just take a few minutes often you can make the situation go more smoothly than you might have predicted not always but <laughs> if, if the parents see that you care about the child and you're respecting ah, the child yep. they're more likely to trust you yep. as the doctor and uh, come on board moving forward are we allowed to tackle a difficult topic john uh, this is essential ethics we're difficult Topics we eat for breakfast. Later. All righty. So let's have a go at eating this one for breakfast. Um, maybe sometimes the parents don't mind so much that you respect their child. Maybe they're more focused on the outcome of we need to get this vaccination done, we need to get this procedure done. Have you ever found yourself in situations where you want to negotiate and talk with the child more than the parents want you to? Um, so, yes, absolutely. So, um uh, in developmental practice, we um, often speak to children alone without the parents, uh, pre-adolescent children, and it's really valuable. But sometimes the parents are su surprised and sometimes the parents don't particularly like that. Right. Uh, and so that, not very often, but occasionally, I've had yep. occasion, had one not so long ago actually, yep. where the parent didn't want me to be alone with the child, which rings alarm bells actually. Right, yeah. yeah. I mean, it might be that they, they open up and disclose about things that are happening in the home that they couldn't say in front of the parent. Mm. That happens sometimes, protective sort of things. Um, but just for them to generally speak more openly and freely, it's often really valuable and you get a more nuanced understanding of, what, of the child's mm. perspective on the issues. Mm. Yeah. But the parents may not see their child in that way That's or they may see that their role is to even protect the child from that. Yeah, there's all sorts of reasons why parents may not be totally comfortable with that. And it might just be that they weren't expecting it, you know, mm. I suppose. But, I mean, it's valuable to us because we often get a less restricted, less inhibited child. The other example I was going to give, though, from my practice, where which I think relates to what you're saying, um, monitoring of side effects of medications in children. And I'll give an example that happens from time to time when we use stimulant medications to treat children with ADHD, which are usually helpful to improve symptoms and usually well tolerated apart from suppressing appetite, which happens most of the time and you've just got to, got to wear that. But occasionally it causes cognitive dulling. The child's lights are turned out. They're right. not the same child. And usually if that happens, which is about one in 10, the parents don't like it. They call you up this drug doesn't work for my child, it's turned the lights out, I don't like it. That's what you would want parents to do. But sometimes the parents bring the child in a few weeks after you've started the medication and the child looks immediately different to you. They're quieter, they're not engaged, they're le much less animated. Yeah. And you say to the parents, how are things going? And expecting them to describe what you can see. And they say, oh, good, he's quiet now, he's not causing any trouble. Oh, and, uh, interesting. And you say, so is this, and you point to the child, is this what he's like? At home now? Yeah, he's really good. He doesn't answer back. So that's fascinating to it me. It is, and isn't I, it? And, you know, I've had a number of situations where I've said, look, th that's not what we're trying to achieve. That's not right. When We have to stop that medicine, you know. And so where does the child's view come into that? Does the child get to say how they feel about the it? The child always it? gets to say how they feel about yeah. it. Yep, always. No, that's what I demand any time. I'm talking about stimulants and ADHD yep. now. Yep. Yep. Uh, or or other, uh, other medicines that might alter how the child feels where the subjective experience is obviously a key part of uh, potential benefits and potential side effects. So it's really important to ask the child, when you start the medication, to tell the child that next time I want you to tell me how it feels. And then next time you see them to ask the child 
in different ways, how does it feel? Mm. Do you feel different? Do you feel weird? Do you feel strange? So in the situations you've described, that it's opening up a space for the child to say something different to what their parents are saying. Yeah, and to what their parents have observed and to what their parents may know. And it's not uncommon that when you ask the child, they'll talk about a side effect that the parent didn't know they were experiencing because the parent hadn't asked. Right. Interesting. So I guess the question, if you don't ask, you, you don't know. So, Daryl, how do you handle that when the parent wants to keep going with the medication? Are, are you then making the decision? Are you drawing the child out to say how they feel and so it becomes obvious that it's the child's... Yeah, it's uncomfortable. Um, and, um, you know, then as you have that conversation, it's pretty clear to the parent that it's not right. The actual, the decision-making is not that sure. difficult because I say to the just look at the parent and say, you know, that's an unacceptable side effect. I'm not comfortable with that. This medicine is not working for your child. Let's think about what else we can do. Oh, Lynn, that really is, though, deciding with children, isn't it? Yes, and I think it's a really good example of how it's deciding with children without leaving the ultimate decision with the child. So, Daryl, you didn't say, when this happens, I turn to the child and say, okay, child, you decide, you choose whether or not to stay on the medication. The way you've described it, you actually took the decision, but the reason for the decision was very much the child's voice, what the child was saying to you about their yeah. experience. But, I mean, I think it's the special work of paediatricians, isn't it? It's, it's to bring the voice of the child forward. And I think it's easy for deciding the children to be misconstrued. If you just read it, you might think, oh, well, that's just ceding decisional authority to children and they sh either shouldn't have it or slightly nuanced, not fair for children to have to make these yeah. big decisions. And that's not what we're about what we want to do is bring the voice forward and have their reasonable concerns and thoughts included. I think the field's really evolved. John, I'm interested in your views on this, but, you know, we now have a department in this hospital and I'm assuming it's similar things in other um, major centres. Uh, internationally, I think they call it child life therapy. And there are now, you know, a whole range of strategies that are, that are very psychologically based and nuanced and individualised for that child's situation with a lot of preparation and so on, um, which is to totally to address the problem about um, having to do things against the kid's wishes. And sometimes mm. you just need to, but we can do it much better than we used to. Mm. I mean, and I think what we see at the children's is where that's Super important becomes in chronic disease where we're going to have ongoing involvement. But actually, when you when you think about it, um, people are going to have disease and illness and things done all through their life. And while it might be a one-off event for your tooth extraction, your arm resetting or something, that might set their whole life's healthcare project back if it goes badly. Mm. And so uh, things need to go well, both out of respect for the person and instrumentally. Mm. But if we accept that we have moved and we're putting the, the child into the centre of our care, into child and family-centred care, what about the next step? So, so I was thinking too in terms, though, that it might lead to some coaching, coaching of the kids, coaching of the parents to coach the kids in terms of bringing them forward, uh, augmenting their decision-making capacity, thinking of 
the future, Daryl? Yeah, I think that's right, John. Again, whether the language is coaching or modelling, I mean, coaching is actually is quite a good word. Most kids haven't had the experience of being asked to be involved in these sorts of decisions. They're quite, you know, they're challenging decisions in everyday life, at school and so on, you know. Um, the stakes aren't as high. Um, so it's actually quite confronting for some kids when, mm. you, when you involve mm. them in these conversations. But if they can stand up to it and if you persist, they enjoy it. And, and as you say, John, for chronic illness, it's so important to involve them over time for so many reasons. And you haven't used the term, but you've alluded to the idea of sort of medical trauma and post-traumatic medical stress. And it's a very real entity and we see that. But then I think another aspect of that is modelling of respect and trying to understand children's perspective, I think is really important for doctors to do for parents, particularly, you know, parents who've come from traumatic backgrounds or backgrounds where they just haven't had the space to, or their own experience of of childhood and how they were parented just hasn't permitted them to think in that way. Many thanks to John Massey and Lynn Gillam for letting me share their fabulous podcasts with you and to Claire Delaney and Daryl Efron for their wise contributions. You can find full episodes at rch.org.au slash podcasts slash essential ethics. And be sure to check out an earlier series called The Ethics Toolkit. It's even easier to stay up to date with episodes of Essential Ethics or Pomegranate Health by searching for them in any podcasting app. Some examples are CastBox, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Overcast or Pocket Casts please subscribe and leave a review as it helps others find the show. In a soon-to-be-published article in the Medical Journal of Australia, Professors Gillam and Massey explore the ethics of giving COVID vaccinations to a consenting child against the wishes of a parent, a timely reenactment of the Gillick case and a test of how far we've come in recognising capacity in a minor. I'll put links up at the episode webpage nested under racp.edu.au slash podcast. You'll also find a transcript to every episode And don't forget the applications for the podcast editorial group. Our contact email is podcast at recp.edu.au. Look forward to hearing from you. I'm Mick Cavazzini.